Amen. So we're talking about um, the truth about God. And um, amen. And how the church has had that truth revealed to her. God has revealed himself to the church. That word revelation really uh, is an offshoot of the word for intimate knowledge. So God has taken us aside and given us something that the world does not get. It's an intimate revelation. It's a spiritual intimate revelation. Things that <clears throat> he knows deeply in his heart. He has uh, uh, called the church aside. So y- you have to renounce your life as well in order to get that revelation. So the thing that we can can liken it to, the thing most closely we can liken it to, is a marriage where two individuals share hearts, share minds, share lives, share all things. And so <clears throat> it is like that, where God takes us away from the world. He captures us, and then he begins to reveal to us his mind, his heart, his desires, his love, all of those things come to us through this intimate relationship that we have with the Lord. So much so that he entrusts us and only us. These things are only known by the church. So you may have people, when you begin to share things about God and you share them with certain people you may have people who will uh, ask you things like well how do you know that where did you get that from it it's that it's that intimate and it's that uh, secluded away from general knowledge these are things that you cannot learn uh, through textbooks or classrooms or anything like that it's learned by taking perhaps you can get seeds of understanding in a general way but they are, people are taken aside. You know, it's always uh, coming apart from the world or from general knowledge and seeking to know more about God. Sometimes we get to know more about God through our own struggles. Sometimes you're merely trying to get to know how to do certain things and then you bump into God who has that knowledge and he begins to share it with you through relationship sometimes he'll many times he'll work with people in in a kind of a consistent way I know about is that he won't give you a lot of knowledge about things from the outset he will give you enough to get you to use that and then give you more when that's needed so he's not a God who is you know like in say for instance if we know knowledgeable people in the world they tend to just keep talking. You, you understand what I'm saying? They just talk. They hear themselves talk and run it. We're so accustomed to so many words that it's kind of strange for us to relate to someone who knows everything and they're discreet about it. They understand how much we need to function, how much we'll obey, and they give us only that much. That's what discretion is. You give it in in uh, finite amounts, discrete little compartments of knowledge, and uh, you see what a person does with that first before they can operate in more. 
see. Good teachers know how to do that when they have students, especially if you have students like tutors who can get people on a one-on-one. -on -one. They know how to repeat things over and over until a person gets that that understanding and then they can build and move on to other things. People who are not very skilled at it will tend to throw a lot out there, you know, and, and you know, just put it out there and it confuses a person or they don't really grasp or understand it. And so you have to understand that God's an excellent teacher and he'll only give us enough to get that need met that he knows we're going to function in. And then he'll put it to the test to see if we'll be consistent in it. See, if you don't get more than uh, John 3.16 throughout your whole lifetime, he's going to work and make sure that you're consistent in that. You know, that you know he loves you kind of thing. And so when we talk about knowledge of God, we talked about two different areas. Number one, we said that God is not angry with man. That's where we all meet him is in repentance and new birth. When you find out God's not mad at you anymore, you find that out because he has made peace with us through the blood of his cross. And that's where everybody meets him for the first time, is at the foot of the cross where we can look up and see that Jesus has been offered up for our sins once and for all. Number two, we found that he loves us. Hmm? Now, why didn't we put that first? Because many people will not experience his love until they come to the cross. See? And that's the problem with the sinner that's out in the world. Um, they want to experience God's love without coming to the foot of the cross, without getting the peace first. You get peace first, and then his love comes to dwell in you. It's not the reverse. Many times a sinner, because he's outside of the covenant, will see God's love as harmful. Got me? Because God's love demands holiness. So you can't experience that until you've recognized that you're a sinner. And you need to take on that attribute, you see. So we all come to him the first way, the same way. That he he's uh, <clears throat> he's not mad at us anymore. He's made peace. It's through his peace that you can offer intercessory prayer for people. See, because he's made peace with you, you have an altar before God where you can offer up whatever is on your heart to offer up to God. Just like Abraham interceded for Lot. We believe Lot was a righteous man, but we don't know that he maintained righteousness the way Lot did through a covenant with God. We think that Lot may have grown up because he grew up in the same household with Abraham. He may have gotten some benefits of Abraham's righteousness, but remember Abraham was called out as a sinner. He wasn't serving God when he was in Ur. Uh, he was a Chaldean and he served those gods. And so when he came into covenant, he was able to lead Lot out of that life. And Lot probably patterned himself in some ways after uh, his uncle, but he didn't have it all together. And so when, when Abraham was interceding for Lot, one of the things he was interceding for was for Lot to make the right decision so that he could maintain righteousness. Righteousness was something that you, you stepped into when you made offering to God. 
And so when when Abraham was, uh, you know, bartering for X number of righteous, X number, these righteousness because they had a heart toward God or they would choose God in the end. Got me? So when that time came to choose, Lot did choose, but some of his household chose not to go God's way. So they were considered to be unrighteous people because they didn't make the right decision and the right choice. In the new birth, we make one decision one time, once and for all. Thank God you don't have to keep making it over and over again. And have a new offering and a new sacrifice and live through the curse and all that kind of stuff while you're out being stupid. But you have a righteousness that's imputed to you that when you make the decision in your heart to go that way, you can go that way. So it's very different than what it was then. But it's on the basis of that peace that you are able to intercede for other people. Peace in the atonement and the shed blood, not so much on God's love. You got me? It's, it's, he loves every, he so loved the world that he gave. In other words, his love overrides everything. But you will not know it until you acknowledge your sin, get him washed clean, and come before him humbly so that he can impute that righteousness to you. Love feels a lot better when it's committed love. You ask a lot of these young people who are running around from person to person, <clears throat> they run around because they don't think they'll ever find somebody. It's, that's, that's what the devil tells them. And the more steep they are in in a, a, a wild and promiscuous life, the more they feel rejected. Like they'll never feel like somebody wants them because they don't love themselves. And so <clears throat> we have to understand that God has a plan to get everybody back to him. But you experience his love based on what he's provided for you to be able to experience that. There has to be a basis upon which you can build your relationship with him. See, people who aren't married in the real world say they don't want a commitment, but they really do. They're doing everything committed people do. But the devil has convinced them that because they're not, quote unquote, married, they can walk away from it. Anytime they want to because they don't have confidence in themselves to be able to maintain whatever it is you need to maintain so that that relationship can be a committed one. But everybody wants a commitment. They just don't think they're worthy of it. They don't think they can handle it. They're scared that if so if so and so happens, I want to be able to bail. And if they turn on me, I want to be able to get out of this and all of that kind of stuff. Some people are very comfortable living together, very comfortable, and wouldn't think twice about, you know, getting married. They don't want that. They've already written that off as something that they don't desire. Why? They don't feel qualified for it. They don't feel qualified for it. Since God knows that, that's why he qualifies us (laughs) with the born-again experience. That qualifies you. Huh? to enter into the assurance of that love. Hmm? It's like parents that, you know, sometimes you get a kid that keeps testing you, keeps testing you, keeps testing you. 
And then you might have one kid that just, you know, Mom, I know you love me. And they go on their merry way and they can live their life. And you don't see them for 10 years, but they always know you love them. You know, they carry that with them. And so it's that way with God. When he loves the sinner, but the sinner has no no way of, un, of, of evaluating that or appraising that or even embracing it. Because they don't have his love in them. If your children, the ones that know you love them and they're content with that, somehow they've received that revelation on the inside of them and they don't have to keep pushing you to see what you're going to do if they do this or if they do that. And they're going to be here. They're going to love me. What are they going to do? So you'll have some testers all the time. But there is a way for everybody to be reassured of God's love, and that's through that shed blood. That shed blood does more than we can ever imagine it does. It takes care of every doubt. It takes care of every fear. It takes care of every reluctance. I taught in Cleveland last week about strong consolation and how the oath and the promise work together. It does something in us that we don't even know needs to be done. But once it's done, you never move away from assurance in God. So you never move away from that. And so that these things have to, you have to understand that God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what we need. And he knows exactly how to provide that to us. So he has loved us with an everlasting love. Once we come to him through the blood of Jesus, that's when we can be aware of it, and that's when we can partake of it. So when you share Christ with people, you have to understand that there is a leading of the Spirit to kind of put people in in a, an understanding, at least on their level, of what that can do for them. See. There's always something that people who are outside of the covenant lack, and only God knows that they lack it, and he can bring that that understanding that that's been taken care of by him to them. And so that's that's what your witness is, is about revealing the truth about God to these people. You know, you may think God can't do that, and I don't know what kind of church you've been involved in before, but I'm here to tell you, he can do that and more for you if you'll trust him. But this is a trust thing. You have to trust God, which means you have to get to know him, which means you need to come to church. You got me? So that all that is what, what God can help us to, to convey to people, but we got to understand it ourselves. He loves everybody, but you may not be made aware of it until you really come into relationship. You'll never understand the extent of his love until you can be committed to him. Because committed always draws more. He sees the committed differently, totally, than he sees the uncommitted. Definitely, definitely, totally different. You know, you can liken it when you're talking to people, you can liken it to a marriage. You know, you you know, if you marry somebody, you know that they're going to be there for you all the time. Well, suppose they don't. So, well, listen, God is the one who regulates marriage. You're not just married to a person. You're married to a person before God. And so, you know, you can explain these things to people in ways that they can understand you know there is a difference well i never knew god would help me if i was married well sure why do you think he has you make them vows in front of him 
and pronouncing you man and wife. You know, you don't have to do that it, unless God unless God's involved in something. There's often not some public demonstration of it. See, it's like your salvation is a public thing. You you profess Him publicly. I don't care if it's a, to somebody on the end of a prayer line or or a group of people in a church or you know you share it with somebody that you are excited about God and you want to share exciting things. We've all been there. You know, our first experience with God, we told everybody, whether they knew God or not, some looked at us funny and wanted to kill us, and some told us off and shut up trying to push your religion on me, you know, we got told. But there's that public profession whenever God's involved in something. If you're married, you can get married secretly. But if you made those vows before God, somebody's going to be made aware of it. Uh, you're going to tell somebody, they're gonna, you're going to slip up and put that ring on, or you're going to slip up and call so-and-so your husband or something like that, and it will be known. So there's, when God's involved in things, there is always some public demonstration or declaration of it because that's part of God's plan of keeping us committed to it. There's something about things when they're announced and made public that there's more pressure on us to stay committed to it. More pressure on us. So, <clears throat> God loves us. We've said that, and that love is best experienced in the born-again experience. You'll hear sinners say, well, I know God loves me. No, you don't. You don't know that like you can know it. <laughs> you want to know that better than you've ever known it before? You know, pray this prayer. Give your heart to him he's given his heart to you that's if you believe he's given his heart to you then the only fair thing is for you to give your heart to him so we also said we have forgiveness of sins because of his love and that's the greatest that is the greatest that means we are not the same people anymore we're not the same people anymore once you've been forgiven you don't have that indictment over you. You ask anybody who's ever been indicted for a crime. Once they've been judged not guilty, the whole world changes for them. Before they were locked up, they had to <coughs> didn't have their freedom. You know, that was taken away. So many things are taken away from us because of our sins. Freedom's taken away. Your estate is taken away. You don't have possessions. You don't have uh, a will. You don't. You know, don't have an inheritance. You don't have anything like that. But once your sins are forgiven, your whole life changes. Whole life changes. Your whole life changes. And and the nice thing about that is that you can forgive the sins of others. You can lead other people into freedom as well. You take the shackles off of them. You know, so that's the good thing about that. So the truth about God is that he gives us forgiveness of sins and he tells us whoever sins we forgive, they are forgiven and whoever sins we retain, they are retained. So you can you can bank on that, but you need to know those sins are retained in you, not them. You can't hold people in bondage because you refuse to forgive them. You think you're holding them in bondage, but you're really not. Their sins are retained. See, there's something that happens when an offense comes. It's It finds residence in your soul and in your body. You can tell because when words are said that you, you feel take offense too. I'm not saying that, that they're... they're 
there's there they are within themselves offensive some words are just out there neutral until you decide to get involved in them see and that the truth how many of us have grown up and forgiven enough people till they just bounce off anymore we can laugh at them they don't even but if you keep that trap baited you know you bait your own trap if you keep the bait in the trap like your heart and your soul you keep putting it in there somebody's going to come and, and, and say something and you'll be able aha see I told you they I knew they were no good I knew they didn't like me you know <clears throat> so you don't have to keep baiting that trap you can forgiveness allows you to forget to bait the trap you forget to bait it because it's not a, an issue for you anymore but if you decide not to forgive that person the effect of that offense stays in your soul so it works against you well, you, you have to be careful about that as a Christian you have to uh, keep maintain the light burden the easy yoke you don't carry around sins the Bible says they easily beset us and so you can easily wear your little heart on your sleeve and, and pick up ill feelings about every word that's said and everything that's said. You'll find out <coughs> often at the bottom of it, it's something you're already upset about or sensitive about or you think is a fault or a failure on your part. And you're looking to see the bait is you keep that offense set in you so that if somebody just contributes a little bit to it you consider they've hurt you but really you're the one with the the wound that's that's there continuously see many times people are hurt by things that people say but if you can in your mind understand now is that coming from me because i feel this way because i lack so and so and such and such and it seems that that person is saying this to hurt me but really it's my responsibility because I'm the one with the lack and I I think it's like obvious to everybody and I'm picking that up you got me uh, if it, it can be about anything it can be about your money about your marital status about you know people who are single think married people are bragging on their spouses honey do you know the difference between a brag and a complaint can you put your ears on right Married people want to be single all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, we long sometimes our little our little daydreams <laughs> don't include the spice, if you know what I mean. But anyway, but see, we all do that. Huh? We all do that. You know, we we always lump ourselves as haves and have-nots. And if it's something that you haven't walked into yet, Know that you will, and you'll be sitting up looking like having daydreams about singleness just like the rest of the married people. You'll be right in a pot with them. But see, while we're, we always look at ourselves as lacking instead of looking at ourselves as full, you know, and really believing we have a full life. You know, sometimes every now and then you'll think about, well, I wonder what it would be like to be married and have that and have this and have that. But pretty much in God you have a full life and you're not you don't have a, a heart that's sensitive about it and you got a trap baited for the you know, and you sitting there and listen and for the first time somebody says something that sounds they mention that word, you something in you goes off, you know, you're ready to 
to get upset about something. And so <clears throat> when we have forgiveness of sins, and that's not even a sin. It's just a temporary condition for many people. For some people, it might be a permanent condition. I don't know. But you have to understand that these things are not things to be offended about and hold things against another human being because they uttered something that hit you wrong. You got me? You got to be responsible for your own places that get hit wrong. And so if you forgive, then that person's sins are sent out of your soul. They're, that word that they said does not get work in you and start bringing you down. It's forgiven and it's sent away. And you can go on and heal from, from the inner things that you carry. You know, that, that place where you're sensitive about it, God's trying to heal that. And so forgiving when those things come to us is part of the healing process. And once you're healed and whole, then you can start expecting good things in that area of your life. See, That's, that's when you start to expect good things. So God has a process that he's putting us all through whereby we're able to get healed and hold in those areas where we were sensitive and then you can have fulfillment in those areas when you're healed and whole you'll have God's fulfillment now many times people try to fill them up you know if you're really sensitive you'll go find you somebody we always talk about getting the brother out there you know it depends on your age you know the homeless shelter if you're in that age group the nursing home if you're older Bring the brother in the church and tell me that's your the one and put it get a little suit on him, give him a bleach bath and all that kind of stuff, as Pastor Shirley would say. And bring him to the altar. That's not getting you healed and whole so that you can embrace that person into your life. That's just you trying to heal yourself with a false band aid, putting a patch on a, a cancer, so to speak, a band aid on cancer and you just need to be healed. Let God heal you. Quit being so sensitive. Quit thinking everybody's talking about you when they say single or married. You know, it's those are normal words we all use. We can use them without you taking offense to them. And so if we'll allow God that through the process of forgiveness, and what do we do when we forgive? Because of the shed blood, we're able to take that sin and send it away from our souls and on to the body of Jesus. Not on to the person that said the words, but on to his body where they're absorbed in his righteousness. And then you're righteous, they're righteous, and no harm has, and you can be friends. There's nothing standing between you and that person. You can share with them. You can talk with them. You can find things in common with them. You can have relationship because the blood has taken care of what would be a barrier because of an offense. It's torn that barrier down, and you're able to have fellowship with that person. And that's the beauty of forgiveness. That's what God, that's how he wants his kids to live with one another. It's consistently forgiving, sending sins away. Because Jesus took them all away. And that's what he wants us to aid as believers. Aid in the take away of sin process. Not putting sin on people through fault finding. You know and backbiting and all that stuff we do. When we mad at people we tend to take it to a little group therapy session of backbiters. You know we got to you know maturity uh, lens that we quit doing those things. 
take them confess them forgive let jesus take them away and then you can have a normal conversation with somebody you'd have to be whispering and trying to see who's around and get get with a certain bunch of people as crazy as you are who will listen to your yak you know <coughs> elevate yourself a little bit so that you can have healthy conversations I was listening to, uh, uh, I watched a documentary about, uh, I think I might have mentioned this before, uh, a singer, his name is Bill Withers, and he was very popular during like the late 70s and 80s, and he kind of disappeared from the entertainment scene for a number of years, and so he's probably in his 70s now, and somebody found him and decided to talk to him and find out what he was doing and all of that kind of stuff, and it was very interesting. I didn't realize he he has written many like that that song "Lean on Me" that he gets getting re, you know residuals and royalties on because they put it on every time they want to have a do-gooder you know thing. It's on there, and some other songs too that were were very popular. But he he said he stuttered until he was about thirty years old, and he said that he had to live with a lot of rejection and embarrassment. For people, uh, from people, but he said when he, during this documentary, he was getting an award from a group uh, that helped people with that, you know, that, that problem. Uh, I think it was like a speech impediment group or, you know, something like that where different types, there's different types of stuttering, different, but they try to retrain people and have pretty good success at it but it's a very sensitive uh ability to have and so they have groups that help and support and encourage people and you know help them find good jobs and get them out of their shyness and their rejection and so he said that and his stuttering cleared up he i'm not sure how and i'm not i don't know if he's sure how but he doesn't stutter anymore and he said that People would come up to him and hit him and say, well, stop it. Just talk, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, if you, you think about it, now Jesus healed people by the laying on of hands and cast things out. So that's not too far off of the mark, but people don't have the, but it comes from somewhere. It's not just mean and it's not just stupid, but it can come across that way because it doesn't work with these people, you know, but, but there's. There's, it's so common to do that sometimes that, that he said it was done to him a lot and made him more self-conscious and, and more shy. But he said, he said, I found something that helped me. He said, I found that if you have this condition, he said, you have to have within you a resident forgiveness for everybody that does that to you. You got me? Now, I don't know how much of a Christian he is. If he is a Christian, if he professes Christ, I think he does know something about the Lord. He may not be very, but he understood that. He got that from God, you see. Because if you can make up your mind to forgive people and not to be offended, you don't get pushed back into that shell of living there not being able you're more caged you're more withdrawn you're more so he was really giving people tools for how to draw themselves out into a place where they could have dignity not be so self-conscious you could function better if you took that on and i thought well that's really the answer 
for for everything that afflicts us and offends us is resident forgiveness and i'm thinking how did he manage to understand that that but he he said he carried that around inside of him and gave it freely to everybody that he felt offended by that said something to him about and i believe that was key to his deliverance because if you're you're shy and you're reluctant and you embrace it as a handicap and you don't think it's going to get any better and the devil messes with it you'll never get over it but if you decide to release those people, you don't carry all those offenses with you everywhere that you go. And to the point where you're debilitated and you can't function. So <clears throat> forgiveness of sins comes as a part of God's covenant of peace. And he expects us. In fact, he demands that we forgive others. And if we don't, we are penalized for that. We, he will not forgive our sins either. So people who don't forgive have a tendency to be not as free in the way that they live as people who do. You know, you, the freedom that we have, the liberty that we have in Christ comes because we freely forgive and therefore are not afraid to be offended. See? That's the one thing the devil hates about us. Is if we ever get mature enough to just be us in God and know our sins are forgiven, God can do so much with a person who's not self-conscious and cautious. That's why the the traditional understanding of who a Christian is has always put some shackles on us. What kind of Christian are you? See, puts you under lock and key again. The minute you try to be free or be bold or something and speak up, there's the devil there to put that shackle, that traditional um, vision of who a Christian really is. Somebody who's walking around looking to get slapped around, give another cheek so you can slap them again, and you know won't talk back, is nice to everybody. You know the little doormat uh, vision of who a Christian is, and and that's because the devil hates it when you're able to take your direction straight from God. He hates it. Because when you know you're adopted by God, you're his child, he's your only judge, he's your only source, he's your only anything, and the world can't take anything away from you because they didn't give you anything. When you know that, and you live that every day, and you're free like that, then what can the devil do to you? can't do anything to you. I love it to see Christians that are willing to go into different areas and 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 get involved in that where they're fearless when they you take that to different parts of the world where the devil's always excluded people kicked them out not wanted them involved won't let them get involved and all that he threw intimidation tell you this is no place for a christian i love it when people can get in i mean when god really sends them there you know and they can get involved and stand up for god unafraid unashamed not concerned just go for it because they know they're free they know god on the inside and there's that freedom there it's a wonderful thing to see because those people can upset a lot of stuff they can change whole nations of people because they have that that freedom that only comes with knowing you're for, you're forgiven and you're willing to without reservation forgive others you're not willing to stop your life and hold on to something petty like who did what to you when see 
where you got to have all these therapists and years of therapy to get you to forgive somebody, I think is the most asinine thing I've ever heard of. Even though I know there are some people that get helped some from that. But the bottom line is that you've got to walk away from that. And you can only do it through the shed blood at Calvary. There are some things that won't get no better until you receive Christ and you can get your total freedom from them. So anyway, um, God has given us that forgiveness, a very powerful tool to help our lives so that we can walk in freedom from all oppression. So there's no reason why a sin that's committed to us or one that we've committed should stop our lives from being productive, fruitful, joyful, healthy, happy. No reason. You just have to keep working at it. Sometimes you get a little free and the devil will tell you that's not for you, who you think you are. Well, what about so-and-so? Remember when you did that? Remember, yeah, devil, but I also remember when I kicked you out of my life. I dropped on my knees on the whatever, whatever, whatever year, 1900 and whatever. And I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, my Lord. And I don't follow you no more. So we end this conversation right here at the bloodline. You don't talk to me no more. And so we can we can walk in that, folks. We We can walk in that. We can walk in more. God always wants to provide more for us. So the blood of Jesus is an ongoing provision for us. It feeds us life and eternal life. That fountain. It's not just a forgiving fountain, but it's also a life-giving fountain. Blood is a life-giving force. So point number three, God is righteous yet merciful. Many people are afraid of righteousness. There are Christians that are afraid of it. Sometimes little nominal Christians, your little nominal Christian friends, the little churchgoers, will shy away from you because they know you've got more light than they have. Mm -hmm. So they're afraid of righteousness, even though they've partaken of it. They partake of it, but they don't walk in it. The person that walks in something is more confident in it than the person who just receives it and puts it off. So you can receive righteousness and then just live your life in the flesh. You know, I, because it te- it depends on your perception of what God is involved in your life for. If you need God every day and you've made up your mind to serve him, then you'll walk in righteousness on a more consistent basis than someone who just sees what Jesus did at Calvary as their great escape. You know, they're at the end of my life, I know I'm saved. You know what I'm saying? That's that's how people, some of them put it together in their minds. Catholics are big at promoting that because their their numbers are so huge because people can just name themselves, just be nominal in it, and there's no conversion, there's no reality of Christ there's no life of Christ inside of them because they don't you know uh, uh, condition it on the new birth any of that stuff so and then they have to their religion has to include some kind of assurance for end of life security and that's the you know the last rites or what they call extreme unction Uh, many church historians believe that came from James 
uh, 5 where it tells us to call for the elders of the church. And they would pray over us, anointing us with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith was to save the sick from sickness, not save them from hellfire. But when power left the church, what were they left with? A bunch of rituals that they call sacraments. And so they feel that the end of life is to get that person, find them on their deathbed and get them to throw that oil on you. And hopefully somebody asks you to repent of your sins and receive Christ. I don't know what all they do, but, you know, if, but if the priest gets caught in traffic, Your salvation never depends on another person getting there for you in time. You got me? It never should and never will. God doesn't enter into that kind of agreement. That's just a man-made thing to give people false assurance about eternal security. You need eternal security to get across the street without getting hit by a truck. You need, you know, understand what I mean? You need that every day that you live. But that's denied in certain faiths. Because they don't preach the new birth. You preach the new birth, you'll have a lot of people real secure. But you'll have smaller numbers. Because you won't have people coming in under that covenant. See, You'll have a lot of numbers. But you'll have people living on all kind of different levels. And sin and sin rampant in your numbers. And you don't have anything to stop it. And don't have anything to, to help people with it. Because it's not on the right foundation so in righteousness we are assured of right standing with god this is how you can go to god anytime and pray because god is righteous when he adopts you through being born of his spirit then you are righteous as well. He imputes righteousness to you through the new birth and the spirit of adoption. So the new birth really gets you into the family. I don't know about you, but I have three sisters. And being in the family was never enough for any of us. We had to know who mama liked the best and who daddy liked the best. You got me? That's adoption. That's adoption. So you can't just be born into that family. There must be a personal assurance that comes to your heart that you are accepted without condition. And because of our insecurities as human beings, we never get that assurance until God comes in there and makes you have to be assured from God first before you can be assured in any person-to-person relationship down here on earth. That's why you have so many problems in families. I mean, you have families where all the kids go to college and they're all doing well except one. Just couldn't quite get it in him. Or you might have a a family that seems perfectly normal, but they got one child, and that kid has been nothing but trouble ever since they've been on the earth. See, there's something, there's a reassurance missing that they need. 
good parents know how to provide that. They're not really challenged by it. Some are too challenged by it to provide it. You know, you get a parent that's defensive about their position, their decisions. They can never just let the child be curious and satisfy their curiosity, reassure them. You know, it's so easy to do, it seems, but it's hard for people sometimes because mom and dad are insecure. They weren't raised right or whatever. You know, it's just just a hard, hard place there. And that's why God blesses all of his children with the spirit of adoption through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that releases that assurance to us. When you're born of God's Spirit, then the Holy Spirit, it is his job to release the spirit of adoption to you where you are comfortable calling God Father. It seems normal for you to think of him as Father. That knowledge comes to you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can remember when I was first saved, and I didn't have it, but I remember when it came. I could remember hearing other people say it and thinking, oh, wow, you know, they must really know God. And then one day, it was just normal for me to do it. I don't know when it happened, how it happened, but one day, and that was when the spirit of adoption was released to me in such a way that I grabbed onto it and I held onto it. And not wavered from it. So it's normal to me before I go anywhere. I talk to God first. You know. Before I make any decision. I talk to him first. Very few things are really just automatic. Because there's too much at stake. You know. I know how crafty the devil is. And how he'll get you on the road. If you get anxious for something. All he needs is a little bit of fear. Or excitement out of you. And he'll start carving a path for you that looks real clear and looks like you should get on it. Hmm? Until you ask Father. Well, well, God, you know, I'm, I'm believing this looks like it might work, but I'm not sure. Can you let me know? Can you tell me? Can you help me? Can you? Whatever. You got me? It was so funny yesterday I had to to I had some dental work done. I know I told you all I'd turn myself in after ten or fifteen years. <laughs> I go every twenty years or so and check them out. <laughs> you know, it's just how I roll, you know, so I know I got a lot to be done and all that and whatever, whatever. But anyway, I've I've been getting it done, but I go to the dental school because I get two or three dentists at one time. People go in there with this one dentist in there, like Pastor Shirley said. I should have known something was wrong with him. You know, I mean, that's always. <laughs> but anyway, I decided to do that. And and I went to school over there, so I know the ins and outs. You know, it's a, it's a certain level of trust there. and You know, you can get confident. But I had a complication with the last procedure. And I had started to have a lot of pain in my jaw and and the opportunity came up to have it all done in one day yesterday and I was thinking about it while I'm thinking I'm saying now God I'm you know the the the, uh, dentist that I'm assigned to he said well I'm going to go over here and I said he said I'm going to see if they can do this for you right now he said we'll put an emergency 
you know, thing on it, and, and we'll see if we can get you in. And so I'm riding along with that, and I said, oh, okay. And I'm thinking about it, and I said, oh, let me see what kind of time I got. And this is Friday, and I wonder. And so when I said that, it was approved of, and we were on our way. And then later I said, oh, God, I ain't saying something. It was disapproved. You know, it was like every time I would make a decision to go one way or the other. And see, that's how we need to function before God. You understand me? That when we are making decisions, they're not just made and you go straight and, and whatever happens, happens. You confer where I'm having a talk with God on the inside of me. Well, Father, you know, this sounds good, and I'm, but I'm looking at some things. Maybe this won't work out. If you can get it to work so that it's lot less stress and trauma for me today, and, you know, I know it's got to be done eventually. If that's going to work, why don't we do that so I'm not here for six hours and 15 different people and all this kind of stuff. So they worked and, and were able to do an emergency treatment that doesn't take care of the whole thing. I know I have to have that done at some point, but it will will be okay. God reassured me it would be okay to go that route. So I was able to settle it between me and God, and then I proceeded and submitted myself to man's hand for the procedure, you know, as much as I do. Because the whole time the procedure, I'm thinking, God, guide his hands, help him. Give him the right thoughts. If that's the wrong move, don't let him make it. You know, you don't just go to somebody and throw yourself down there like you trust them. That's offensive to God. It's offensive to him. It's like the doctor's smart and God's not. Well, he made that doctor. You know, it probably took the doctor 40 years to develop that procedure where it doesn't kill 90% of the people they try it on. And you don't trust God? Are you kidding me? So I tell God, you, and if I need something created, God, I know you can create that through his hands. You got me? And so you submit yourself to the Lord, but you hang on to your father as the one who's leading you through it. He gives you counsel. He gives you understanding. He reassures you of, a minute by minute of his ability to help these things. Don't think, I don't keep in the back of my mind that the devil would love to slip up and hurt some some person who's a, a voice for God. I don't care how big a voice or how small a voice you think you have. So you don't take chances like that. You don't come out from under the authority of the church and under God's anointing and his covering to get things done. So, you know, and the devil likes it because he can get you in pain and get you to, you know, just whatever. You know, I don't care. Just get it. Uh-uh, no, we're not going there. If it takes a few twists and turns to get this thing done right, we'll get it done right and know that God has moved. So that's what you want. So the spirit of adoption puts you under his authority alone. If he needs man to help, he can bring that in. Or if he can do that so that it's it's helpful to you, he'll do that too. You got me? So, you know, in anybody that's in pain, you want your pain alleviated, but you want God to be in there in the guiding it and in, the, in charge of it. You don't ever want to set yourself up uh, for man's <coughs> authority. You know, they, now they've got all these people that had back pain, getting steroid shots. Now a lot of them are dying of that fungal meningitis. And that's how they got that in there, contaminated that way, is very hard. It's usually viruses. 
sometimes bacteria because when you analyze samples those things are very you know a virus is really hard to see but bacteria is a little bigger but a fungus is so big you wonder how it passed through their inspections and so forth and it just is beyond me it's beyond me but it happened anyway and people are dying of it just went innocently went in to get their normal shot to help their pain and now they're paying the ultimate price so we don't want that that's why you have a father that's why daddy you you talk to daddy about these things well daddy is this right just like you would go to your parents say i can remember going to my parents when we had major decisions and you know if we were my husband the first house we wanted to buy i was talking to my dad about it i said well you know because they own property they didn't have a lot of really good property but they but there was something about a reassurance even if they don't have knowledge about what you're talking about that comes when you talk to your natural parents you can they can settle you and help you and give you that little kid confidence they had when you first started walking or something you need that when you have to make decisions and you have that in god you can go to his word. You can find out what he says. You can confer back and forth with him. You could talk to God about these things. You can, he can help you greatly when you go into these things. So don't you ever take authority and control over anything you have, where it's your money, your body, your mind, your whatever, your children. You don't take control back and think you can make wise decisions. You always submit them to the counsel of God so that so that. You know and he knows that these things are being considered the right way. And he can carve a path for you of success in that. That's what you want. You want success. Don't ever be so fed up with something you just want to get it over with. Because the devil will do that too. So God is righteous yet merciful. He's imputed righteousness to us. But it's under his authority. Righteousness only works through the spirit of God. Your righteousness is the spirit of God enabling you to do things. You hear people in the world say God doesn't judge. Yes, he does. He gave us laws. What do you think the commandments are there for? They're there, and he's judging to see if we obey them. What do you think they're just suggestions for how to live or cute little saying, something to put up on the wall in the church? But he expects us to live that way, and he does judge the way that we live. He doesn't judge to condemn He judges to empower us and help us to live the right way so that we can be successful and be blessed. That's the end result of righteousness. Righteousness is not just to hold yourself up and put others down. That's not even, that's demonic. But righteousness is to enable us to be blessed by God. To have a successful life. To have a joyful and a happy life. Judgment is not always a bad thing. Especially when the judge is righteous. Now what does righteousness mean? It means not only right standing, but it means to be free from guilt or sin. And it also means to be morally right or justifiable. See, when when we stand in God's righteousness... We are justifiable. That means if somebody accuses us of something, if we go to God and we obey God in it, 
repent do what's right get before god and get that and he judges us as justifiable that means that nobody will be able to levy any kind of accusation against us that will stick got me that doesn't mean you can commit murder and get scot-free you know what i'm saying people just don't get stupid about that righteous thinking won't even think that way righteous people will try to think of ways not to sin and ways not to offend and not to hurt and not to harm that's the way righteousness thinks to be righteous means to be without flaw that that means that we're full of faith and fully capable of accomplishing what we set out to do so when god imputes his righteousness to us we should have no thought of the what ifs what if this doesn't work or what if i do this wrong or what if righteousness doesn't think like that there's no fear in righteousness righteousness only waits for direction from god to assure success and righteousness understands that god will perform that he will give it to you there's never any doubt that god will not come for you righteousness makes you feel that way god's laws are just that's what you need that's the truth we need to be able to tell about god his laws are just why because he obeys them they're a reflection of him see your parents can't say that they tell you not to smoke and drink but they don't do like i do well you know that person you what kind of confidence you go come on now y'all be honest but if somebody can come to you without that sin and without that flaw and they can embrace you and love you and impute that to you see if your parents could just give you whatever it is that they have that makes them do things the right way they do it for you only god can do that he can impute righteousness to us and we can function just like he would in the world until we step out of it our problem is always doubting our righteousness why we doubt it because we haven't renewed our minds to the place where we can just pick it up all the time and walk in it but god's laws are just because they reflect him they're a reflection of his own thoughts all the time so he's just he's not mean to some people and nice to some he's not favoring christians only anybody can become a christian he shows he has set a path for everybody the whosoever's to come in there so if we think he favors the christians which he does he favors his own people and he says that but he never leaves anybody out of being able to qualify as his own people so his laws are just because they reflect him they reflect his thinking his insight he gives grace to people who humble themselves humility is not a continuous state if you'll humble yourself he puts his grace on you and that grace then becomes more of a continual state than the humility if you can see humility as bowing before him to receive enablement to rise up and do something 
then you humble yourself to God until his grace comes. That's why when righteous people stand up, they're bold, they're, they're aggressive, and they're forward-moving. And then the non-believers think they're arrogant because they always misjudge righteousness. So he gives grace to us as we humble ourselves to receive his grace. And then that grace has within it all the abilities we need to carry out life down here on this earth. The picture of the suffering servant with the long face, that's baloney. You got me? That's the way the world depicts because they can only think in one dimension. Christians are supposed to be humble all the time. Yes. Come on now, we receive, we humble ourselves to God and receive his grace. And then you live out the Christ life. That might be boldness, that might be confidence, that might be uh, justice, that might be righteousness, that might be gentleness and kindness, you know, in, in all of the fruit of the Spirit, whatever is needed in that situation at the time. You know, humble will get you stepped on and run over if it's you know displayed before the wrong person you know so you need his grace that grace is an enablement it enables you to rise up in the power of god that's needed and it's appropriate for every situation and he resists the proud and that's why some people perceive him as unjust because the proud don't get the benefit of his grace They just don't get it. Titus 3, 4 through 6 says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. I'm talking about Jesus. So the kindness and love of God our Savior. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So when you were washed, your sins were washed away, you were regenerated. You became a new creature. And after you become a new creature, you're renewed by the Holy Spirit. That newness comes up mercifully every morning. So you don't have to keep going and getting, uh, uh, you know, washing unless you sin, of course. You know, you, you know, if you can make it through a day without doing nothing stupid, then you're just renewed every morning. Mercifully renewed and reestablished every morning. Which he shed on us abundantly. Huh? You're, this is abundantly given to us. And that being justified by his grace. We should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what hope are you what are you what are you hoping God will do for you? What's in your hope bucket? Everything. Your whole life should be in there. You should be hoping for the plan of God to unfold in your life and you should have some details about it. Yeah, what is God having you do? He's having you win souls. What's he having you do in your family? Pray for them to come into a knowledge of God and, and pray for them to soon come into it. Instead of let's watch people struggle for 15 or 20 years without really confessing Christ. you got to have that. 
And it can't be a forced confession. It's got to be a sincere one. You know, sometimes you need to ask God, God, what do I need to do to win them? You know, what, what, what's missing? What, that's a fair question. It's a good question. What do I need to do to get this accomplished? This is something that's on my plate. It's been on my plate for a while. And I don't want it to bug me and get me out of sorts. But what do I need to do to make this more real? Sometimes it it can be something as simple. I think if people would use things like Facebook to get a, a hold of family and witness to them. Or you can use email or text messaging to text them on a regular basis and share your life with them. What God's doing, they get hungry for that. See, you don't need to be separate. I know the gospel separates. It puts a division there. But you need to go to God and say, now, God, is it time for me to bridge that gap, to come across that divide that's been so great between us? Sometimes the Holy Spirit will will move on your heart and say, now, this just isn't enough. Uh, It's not enough for me for the plan I have for their lives, you know. And so these are things that God will put on our hearts to do as we (coughs) understand that our hope and our confidence is in him for all the things that he's ordained for us to do. You got to find out what's on your plate. Household salvation's on everybody's plate. That's a no-brainer. And salvation really means his peace is wholeness intact nothing missing nothing broken we get missing and broken people in our households you know in our bloodline and so we need to keep praying and keep finding out how to get them into a place of peace with god so that that he can have his way in their lives he's got a plan for them see we don't we don't put our plan out there or think we've accomplished something because we think they're saved You've got to get that plan of God going for them and and make sure it gets accomplished. So God is righteous, yet he's merciful. That's the way he wants his people to be. Righteous, yet merciful. When it's time for mercy, we can give that mercy. Our mercy, the mercy that we give, is the invitation so that they're not left behind. That's one of the mercies of God is eternal security and eternal salvation. We do have to levy God's judgment. We have to tell people, no, you can't continue to sin and be a Christian, be a follower of Christ. He didn't sin. Got me? We know everybody sins some, but we don't do it as a matter of our hearts longing for it. And we don't do it without understanding that there's penalty in coming to God in repentance and and getting that washed away. That's that's the way you, you do that. Those little slogans, Christians aren't perfect, just, what do you mean just forgiven? Are you kidding me? Forgiveness is everything. It's not a small thing. And we are perfected. As long as we're walking in him, we are perfected. We're just as perfected as he is. You don't ever make an excuse for for your sloppy humanity. Hmm? Don't Don't live like that. That sets the bar much lower than what God has it for all of us. Much too low. So we have to to understand righteousness as something good. It's worthy of praise. It's wholesome. It's not something that's a turn off. 
But holiness and righteousness are good things. They're good to hold on to that. So that when we stand before the Lord, we can he can see we've been faithful with that. You know, did we live as righteous people down there in the earth? Yes, we did. We kept your laws. We kept your ways. We didn't compromise. We didn't bend under pressure. It wasn't in our hearts to abandon you the first opportunity we get. But it was in our hearts to stay true to you so that others could live. Whoever's on the other side of your prayer list, your righteousness helps them to live. your, Your compromise never helps people. See, your righteousness is what helps them. See. And I can remember times when, <clears throat> you know, my husband working the way he would, you know, we'd get invitations to go here, there, and everywhere. And I'd always pray and ask God first. You know, if we weren't supposed to go, I'd tell myself, well, you know what? I understand you want to be there, but I don't feel comfortable about it. And sometimes God, most time, more often than not, God would say, ah, just go, you know, let him decide this one you know if it was something that was really and sometimes I could tell my husband was being testy he wanted to see what kind of power he had in my life but he soon found out he didn't have none you got me he had husband power and not God power very different but God teaches people and see he learned to respect God through the way I responded to God not through me compromising and, and, you know, wanting to do everything and never saying no and being scared he'd be mad. I care less if he got mad. You know, you understand what I'm saying? That was his problem if he couldn't. And I realized that God would help people to understand your commitment if you trust God. You don't have to explain to people 15 times <clears throat> why you don't do anything on Saturday. They they should have enough respect for God by now that they leave you alone about it. You got me? See, this is what God wants to teach our loved ones. A healthy respect for him. And as I just obeyed God and, and wasn't fearful about, you know, what my spouse would say and all that kind of stuff, God began to show him who he re- God revealed himself to him. You know, I just looked one day, and he was lifting his hands. He was, you know, promised he would go with me here and there. And I said, okay, well, I'm going here. You want to come? Yeah, I'm coming. And, and you know, that God changed him. But it wasn't by me sitting there watching to see how he responded to everything I did for God. It was through me obeying God and trusting God with the the rest of it. You've got to understand what righteousness means. God's got everything under control. He says, you obey me. Quit popping off at the mouth. Quit trying to be self. Quit, quit preaching long sermons <laughs> to your loved ones. You understand what I'm saying? Just say what I say. If I say don't say nothing, just be there and, and be you. And, uh, and, and just be obedient to God and quit trying to figure out how to get people saved. But understand when they're not And that you must pray until you see salvation in the land of the living. While you yet live, you need to see them worshiping God and serving God. And so that was my goal. Some of you don't feel that way. But my prayer is you would. Because you're in your unbelief are robbing your loved ones of a full life in God. And that's not for you to do. You're there to lead the way. Which means you lead they follow. Well, they're not coming. They will follow. So you don't worry about how quickly they follow you. 
That's the problem. We all want to go to church with a house full of people behind us and have a family pew and all that kind of stuff. It may not work out like that. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, some people call that success. But I call success when God reassures you on the inside that he has done the work he has he wants to do in them. And they are free to serve God. They're not bound and hindered anymore. All that drug reality and alcohol and cigarettes have fallen off of them and they can have freedom in God. You don't quit until people are free. Are you kidding me? How'd you get free and they're got to be bound up? You got me? So you you stay with this. You stay with the truth. God wants everybody to live. Well, they might be called to what I'm called to. You ain't there yet either. If you're thinking like that, somebody has a lesser station because they're not called to what you call to, how dare you? You're not there if that's the way you think. But everybody's called to serve God and have freedom. To go as far as they can go in God, and until they get there, you've got work to do. All you got to do is talk to God about it. God, what do I do? What do I do? If you don't get an answer, keep doing what you're doing. Thanking God for their salvation. Bringing that face before God every day. Father, remember my sister so-and-so, remember my brothers, remember them, Lord. They they still haven't come in yet, Lord. What do we do? Is there something else I can do? It's, that's what keeping a watch over their souls means. you, you got to do these things, folks. We have to do these things. You can't depend on somebody else. Well, send laborers. You're the laborer. Huh? You're the laborer. You are the laborer. Who cares about them more than you do? Huh? Nobody. Sometimes we'll see loved ones thinking about getting married. If they're not saved yet, God, please, don't let them get hooked up for life in something stupid. Get them out of there. Get them saved. Get them some. There's got to be a plan of salvation there for both of them, or it's not God. You got me. And so we can do these things, folks. Righteousness helps you do it. If you're in your soul, well, I don't know. They seem like a nice person. If you're over there, get out of there. It's not righteousness. Righteousness has the vision of God for your family, your loved ones. It has high hopes and high aspirations for everybody, not low ones, not compromise, but high things that they can attain to. Amen? Father, we thank you for understanding and for the love of understanding that we have of your covenants, your blessings. Everything that you do, Father, has a high premium, a high value. It's the high life, Father, not the low life, not the life of compromise and the life of fear. We thank you, Lord, for righteousness. Thank you, Father, for that understanding. We bless you. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. If anybody needs prayer, 